that's that's one thing I couldn't handle about beaver. And so, like it's 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 weird to think that there's this animal that kind of stinks and you you can't hardly smell it, but you can't wait to eat it. <laughs> I I got to be honest, Dave. I didn't hear anything after you said you don't like smelly beaver. I uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to have I'm gonna have to have Scott cut that out for me uh, because I'm gonna make that your ringtone when you call me. Is you just saying you don't like smelly beaver? <laughs> Uh, Bradley, are you there? Yeah, uh, I didn't hear. I didn't hear the intro. Great. Uh, I'll. I'll. Um. Since you can hear me, I will reproduce the intro with with a in beat beatboxing style. <laughs> okay. How hard can it be? I'm dying to hear. Yeah, it. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I got nothing on that. So, did did you really play the intro? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the DSC Hunting Podcast. I'm Brad Cochran with Dave Smith, and today's guest is Mr. Brian Richter. Brian, welcome to the show, buddy. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, talking about some crane hunting with you guys today. (laughs) Well, we're looking forward to learning all about cranes. It's something we don't have out here in the Pacific Northwest, or at least we don't have a hunting season. There are a few cranes around, but uh, yeah, no open seasons up or down the Pacific Flyway, at least not on the West Coast. So um, yeah, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself first, where you live, and and um, you know what what other species you might hunt too, and then yeah, we'll we'll roll right into the cranes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh... So I am uh, from Oklahoma, uh, born and raised, and uh, my whole family's from Wisconsin. So that's kind of how I got uh, into hunting. I had uncles that deer hunted and everything like that. And uh, living in Oklahoma, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities uh, for deer and turkey where I grew up, uh, kind of a city boy, and uh, got into college and uh, had some real good buddies get me into hunting and uh, college and just kind of took it from there. So now I live in uh, North Central Oklahoma, which I'm sure you guys have all seen on the internet is quite the waterfowl mecca these days. And so I just got into hunting little geese and hunting lots of ducks and ran around, did that for a few years. Um, got involved with uh, Bill Saunders calls and Bill started helping Bill out doing some sales and some different things like that for him and then um, got into guiding. So that's uh, just little bit about how I got started. I'm sure we'll get a little deeper into that with some other questions and stuff later, but, but, uh, that's my background. So. And, and you guide for Ranger Creek and, um, Blackfoot. Yeah. Yeah. So in, uh, I actually guide in Texas, live in Oklahoma and, uh, I spend basically the better part of hunting season in, uh, West Texas and uh, around Haskell, which is just about an hour north of Abilene. Um, So it's kind of like north central Texas. And uh, we hunt big, big feeds of speckle bellies and uh, a lot of cranes. And a couple of years ago, um, Justin Hill, the guy who owns Ranger Creek, he acquired Blackfoot Outdoors in Lubbock. Uh, Him and his business partner, Derek McDaniels, uh, have been running that for a couple of years great guide service out there 
And so since I'm a floater, I go down on Thursday afternoons and I work Friday, Saturday, Sunday guiding. It's real easy for me to float back and forth between the two guide services uh, wherever they need me. So we uh, they joke around that I'm the part timer and uh, and that's what I do. I have a I have a normal job. I'm a sales guy for a construction materials fastener company um, Monday through Thursday and then Thursday through Sunday. I'm a crane guide. So it's uh, pretty fun, pretty busy, keeps me on the road a lot. Um, but it's nice because I get a few days off every week to go do the family thing and do the the uh, the non-guide deal, if you will. So a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Love working in Texas. Um, if you guys haven't ever waterfowl hunted in Texas, there's nothing like it. Just, I mean, disgusting amounts of birds down there, whether it's ducks in central Texas all the way down to the coast, they have amazing duck hunting. Uh, West Texas is is really like no other. There is um, huge, huge amounts of lesser Canadas. Uh, they get tons of ducks, mallards, pintails, widgeon, you name it. Uh, they get it in West Texas. Speckle bellies, that's primarily what we chase over at Ranger Creek. We have a big pot of speckle bellies that we uh, beat up on pretty good. And I'm talking hundreds of thousands of birds. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, West Texas holds that many birds, but I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of birds between Canada's cranes, specks, ducks, um, some really big feeds. It's it's really blown up over the last couple of years because of social media and everything's so much more um, easily accessed now. But Texas has been hot like that since since the 90s. Um, so. Right on. Uh huh. And what are your seasons like? When do you guys when do you guys start and how late do you go? Yeah. So Texas season starts in early November and runs until the first week of February. So specifically for cranes, uh, there's a couple different zones. So there's like a North and a South zone. Uh, and the area that Lubbock is in, they start in early November and the zone that Haskell is in starts in late November, just after Thanksgiving. So we'll hunt cranes basically from the end of November all the way until the 1st of February. Cool. And, and you guys have huntable numbers of birds right from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th those cranes come out of Canada super early. You know, when it starts getting cold up in the prairies up there, you know, late September, uh, early October, they're on the move. And they they book it through um, the states pretty quick, really. You know, they there's huntable populations in North Dakota and South Dakota, and uh, there's no season in Nebraska uh, because of so much of the migration goes through Nebraska and that Flat River corridor that they kind of keep that as a safety area for the cranes. Um, they just they think it'd be too detrimental to the crane population, honestly, to open hunting there. And it's a huge market for photography and bird watchers and all that kind of stuff. So they skip Nebraska, they go through Kansas, go through Oklahoma and into Texas. And surprisingly, um, New Mexico has has a big crane population. A lot of a lot of guys hunt them in New Mexico as well. But they come from Alaska down through the Cana uh, Canadian prairies and then down through those central states. Uh, that's the big pushes of birds that we're seeing. You also have a West Coast uh, into California, some in Oregon, Washington, Idaho. Some of those birds go down that way. There's also some East Coast birds or some Mississippi flyway birds that go down like Tennessee, Alabama, 
and into Florida and then into even like Arkansas, Louisiana and South Texas. So there's good huntable populations in lots of states, um, just not lots of states have hunting seasons for them. So. Right on. So, hey, hey, hey. Brian, I, uh, I, I'm finally getting to say hi. And I, it's good hey, to, hey, Dave, good sorry, to, sorry, good, hey, good. sorry. <laughs> I, I'm just listening and taking it all in. Uh, it's good, good to catch up with you and good to talk with you and stuff like that. Um, well, so kind of what I want to know, and I probably a lot of us want to know is like, what, what is it like? Like, you know, I've, I've never hunted cranes in my life. And, uh, you know, what, what, it seems like it would be an absolute blast just because they're so big and everything like that. But tell us about the, the experience of hunting cranes and what, what do you love about it? Well, I tell everybody it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on with <laughs> still being legal. So, uh, no, I'll joke. Have you tried hunting them without your clothes on? Well, I mean, it just all depends on what it pays. You know, money is money. Money talks. So, but uh, no, we, we have a, we have a good, a good time with the cranes. Um, It is very similar to goose hunting as far as the aspect of you are going to go find a field where they're feeding or a water source where they may be loafing in the middle of the day and target them that way. You scout just like you would for geese. Uh, you want to pay attention to where they're at in the field, where they're coming from, all those types of things, just like you would geese. And then it's the same aspect of putting out decoys and calling uh, and decoying and working birds in close. Um, where crane hunting really kind of differs a little bit from that is you don't need a ton of crane decoys to have a good crane hunt. You don't have to be a, a caller. You don't have to call at all. Um, a lot of times with cranes, just being on the X, being in the right spot is enough to get it done. But that's okay, kind well, of the... I got to I got to interrupt you right there, Brad. So, you know, we've been talking about making a crane decoy and he Brian just got through saying you don't need a whole bunch of crane decoys. Do you want to just end this interview right now? <laughs> like you want to yeah. Brad, you want to go grab some lunch, you and I and we'll ditch this guy. <laughs> yeah, like so not that many decoys. You're talking like <clears throat> You only need a hundred dozen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every, if every guy had a hundred dozen and four guys hunted together, that'd be about right. No, I'm, oh, no, I'm just now kidding. Uh, yeah. That's about what we thought. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that is kind of the funny thing is, is you can get it done with a small amount of decoys. You don't have to have a ton, but there's definitely situations where you want to bulk your spread up. And especially today, since they're getting so much more popular, uh, people are more people are chasing cranes and it's really it's starting to emulate the goose game a little bit bigger numbers bigger spreads you're seeing guys you know guys who can't call or guys who can't get on the x every day they're going for those big traffic type spreads and and so you're really seeing an explosion of uh the popularity in crane hunting which is creating a really big need for more crane decoys more crane calls more crane guides i mean uh, in the last five years, crane hunting in West Texas has just exploded. Um, I don't want to say they're easy birds to hunt because they're wary. Um, they have great vision and they're kind of cantankerous birds. One day they may do one thing, maybe they do another thing. But it's not traditionally as labor intensive or as equipment intensive as traditional uh, lesser Canada goose hunting where you have to have a hundred dozen decoys and 10 guys putting them out to do it. You know, you can go out and have good crane shoots over three to five dozen decoys pretty regularly. Now you get late season, you bump those numbers up, you're on 10 or 15 dozen 
uh, crane decoys, that's pretty good spread. It's pretty good water cranes. Um, silhouettes have become big in the last couple of years, but the, the birds just don't finish to the silhouettes uh, like they do the full bodies, in my opinion. We've had some great shoots with silhouettes. I see tons of guys on the internet that shoot them over silhouettes, but you also see a ton of guys that are past shooting birds. They're not landing feet down in the decoys, backpedaling at 15 to 20 yards um, like you would over a full body spread. So I'm a big advocate of full bodies uh, for my crane hunting. Uh, just like it, you know, I'm, it's kind of like any type of hunting. A lot of the stuff we use is for the hunter. It's not really for the bird. So uh, for me personally, I like full bodies and uh, that's why I'm trying to twist your guys' arm into making us up some. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So then um, your bag limit is three. Is that correct? Yeah. So <clears throat> in different parts of Texas, there's actually different limits. So down along the coast, they have a two bird limit up where we're at in the northern part of the state we have three birds per guy um and it it's interesting with the popularity in crane hunting over the last i'd probably say five to six years uh you know those limits could change you never know but it just seems like there's a lot of guys out shooting cranes these days but three cranes that's it's a lot of meat you know a, a crane breast is is uh quite a bit bigger than even a, a honker breast uh, they're a pretty good little slab oh, really yeah pretty good slab of meat on them for sure i mean one one crane breast is two decent sized steaks um so really out of one bird you get four pretty nice sized steaks out of those breasts and if you're if you're man enough to tangle with their legs uh their legs make a hell of a meal i took a bunch of crane legs this year because off clients that didn't want them and uh, put them in the crock pot and did like a pulled pork, if you will, or, or pulled beef type with crane legs. And it was phenomenal. One of the best barbecue sandwiches I've ever had. So, hmm. Wow. And, and I've, I've always heard that crane is like the ribeye of the sky, they call it. Yeah. But I've never actually, until the other day, actually, I tasted it for the first time. But um, that was over the what'd Super you, Bowl what'd you and think? it was wrapped in bacon and... Well, it tasted great, but you know, I'd had a few drinks and uh Oh, uh, so your mouth your mouth really was hungry. numb is what you're getting at. You you were right. you and I was really it. hungry, so Yeah. But no, it it tasted it tasted great. I just I didn't have an opportunity to actually try it by itself. It was bacon wrapped. Oh yeah. On the trigger, I mean, you could so. put bacon on a dog turd and make it taste good, so. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, for our listeners, don't don't take that seriously. He's he's kidding. You can't put I can't, I put forget bacon you specific you, I forget you Pacific Northwest guys take everything so literal. I gotta be well, careful I, here. I, I think that Tide <laughs> Tide Pod eating actually originated out here. I'm not, yeah. I'm not positive of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I mean, didn't your state just get done like legalizing hard drugs like heroin, oh, and cocaine, oh, and all kinds yeah. of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's like it's yeah, it's and we wonder why we have a homeless problem. I but mean, that's, fair. That's Fair enough. I, I guess we will have to put in a, a PSA about don't eat dog turds because Richter said so. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't eat Tide Pods. Don't do drugs. And don't don't put bacon on a dog turd. Don't eat a dog turd at all. Uh, all, all I can think about right now is in a, in that movie Step Brothers with Will Ferrell. He has to lick that white dog turd. All I can the, think white, of now. the white dog turd. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So back to how cranes taste. Uh, nothing like a dog turd. 
but uh, actually crane is one of those uh, meats that if you over doctor it or overcook it, it really kills it. It kills the flavor. And I know everybody says that about wild game. You can't overcook it. So that is similar, but, but really my favorite way to eat crane is take, take it off the bird. uh, Just let it rest for a couple hours at room temperature, clean it up, wash it up uh, real good. And then, take olive oil, salt and pepper, and a little Montreal steak seasoning and throw it on a super hot grill for about four minutes each side. That gets it to medium rare and just eat it like a steak. I mean, it is it is really, Brad said, ribeye of the sky. That's what everybody calls it. Um, you know, I'm from beef country in Oklahoma and, and Texas. So to me, a ribeye has lots of fat, has lots of marbling and has lots of flavor that way. Uh, crane has no fat in it. It is ultra lean. Um, yeah, I would compare it to like an elk backstrap, uh, something of that caliber. Uh, and a lot of our clients, a lot of our clients say the same thing. They can't believe it's a bird. You know, this year we had uh, we had a big group of clients come from Maryland. We had Sean Mann uh, come down and hunt with us. Sean's a friend of mine. Met him through working with Bill and the calls and all that kind of stuff. And he's been saying for years he wanted to shoot a crane. So we finally got him down there and he brought a whole host of uh, Marylanders, uh, down there and they, they couldn't believe it. You know, they shot the birds that morning and then took them that evening and cooked them up. And, and it was phenomenal. Uh, little gra- glass of red wine and, uh, some crane is pretty phenomenal. Wow. That's and crazy. And tell us about the meat. What, what's the texture and the color like? Uh, it's, it's dark, like, uh, like a Canada goose breast, same color as a Canada goose breast, but it just doesn't have that, that liver, livery, uh, real irony taste to it. It's really got more of a uh, taste and texture like beef. Uh, so cranes exclusively eat grain. So, you know, when you're out scouting for cranes or you're out driving around, you'll see them, you know, I'll buy you guys, you'll probably see them in marshes and grasslands and stuff like that. But down here, they're exclusively eating milo, corn, wheat stubble, uh, wheat seed that the farmers have just planted. Uh, they are exclusively a grain eater. They don't eat bugs. They don't eat that kind of stuff, uh, at least to my knowledge. Now, when they get up north on the tundra, there's no telling uh, what they eat up there. But when they're down south down here, they're pretty much like grain-fed cattle. So hmm, very, wow. very good flavor. And you don't, and, uh, and, you don't, you don't soak, you don't, you're slicing the breasts up, but you're not soaking it to get the blood out or anything like that? No, I, no, 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 I don't. I soak it in water. If, you know, sometimes you'll get a hemorrhage in there from a BB if they take a, a direct shot to the chest or something. You know, some of them guys, we get a bunch of clients from Oregon, actually, they're not very good shots, so they can't hit them in the head. Yeah, that uh, figures. But, and it's typical. <laughs> but uh, the rest the rest of the clients are all good shots and they hit them in the head. And, but uh, sometimes you get like a hemorrhage in the breast or something, so you soak it in some water, but don't salt the water. Um, just, you know, soaking in water for a couple hours and throw it up. Like I said, olive oil, salt, pepper, a little Montreal steak seasoning. If you like it a little spicy and right to the grill. So it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Sounds we, like we it. actually haven't eaten lunch yet. So it's like, wow, you're making us really hungry. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds pretty good right now. Yeah. So, so, um, what's a, what's a typical feed then? How many birds are we talking well, I mean, it, it's, I tell everybody it, uh, it all depends on where you're at and how the birds are working. So at our, at our Haskell camp, 
uh, we get mostly greater sandhill crane over there and they are more typical to like what you guys would experience with honkers smaller groups uh smaller dynamics in the in the fields you know you can hunt a couple hundred of them uh as long as they're not all coming in one group um you're going to get multiple volleys and get multiple opportunities so a field of three four five hundred uh perfectly acceptable um now over in lubbock where they get a lot more of the lesser sandhill cranes they get a lot of graders over there too a lot of people don't know, but Lubbock, Texas, that area winters about 40% of the entire North American crane population. So it, there's just huge, huge numbers, hundreds of thousands of cranes over in that Lubbock area. And uh, so a big feed over there is, you know, 10, 15,000 birds, but we'll hunt, oh, wow. we'll, yeah, we'll hunt a field with a thousand, uh, 1500, you know, that's kind of that sweet spot is maybe one to 3,000 cranes in Lubbock uh, and over in Haskell, um, you know, we're, we're hunting smaller groups, you know, four or 500, but we'll get up, we'll get fields of thousand pretty regularly in Haskell too. So that's kind of, that's kind of our number. I mean, with cranes, I won't drive by anything. I mean, as long as it's got a couple hundred or more and they're coming in uh, small groups. So you, your hunters get multiple opportunities. We'll hunt it. What, uh, what kind of hides are you, are you using? Uh, most, most guys are using uh, A-frames, either hunting them on the edges or, uh, you know, tumbleweeding in. I know you guys, uh, being up there in the Pacific Northwest, you guys know about the old tumbleweed hides, using them. I'm a, I'm a big layout blind guy, personally. I just like low profile. I just think it's one less thing for the cranes to see. It's not the most comfortable thing in the world for the clients. You get a lot of... A lot of guys who uh, aren't happy about the layout blinds, but you know, I'm six two, three hundred pounds, and I haven't ran since college football. So if I figure I can do it, they can do it. Everybody can do a couple of sit ups every morning. So yeah, come on, suck it up. Yeah, yeah, it's good yeah, for you. You know, you, you get some whiny guys. You know, I won't say where they're from, but you kind of get the gist. <laughs> wow. Uh, have you ever hunted with Sidney Crosby? I haven't, but speaking <laughs> of whiny guys, you know, it's funny, Dave, Dave oh when we were, when we were, you know, talking about doing this, we, we both have a very uh, mutual affection for hockey and, and, uh, you asked me about Sidney Crosby. And so my favorite hockey player, so I grew up, I played goalie. I was a goalie for 20 years, but my favorite player is uh, Bob Probert from the Red Wings, uh, mm -hmm. historic, historical tough man. Uh, probably the best fighter to ever fight in the NHL and, uh, but could score too. That's what a lot of people don't know about old, uh, old pro bears. He was a hell of a player, but, uh, yeah. So I'm not a Sidney Crosby fan. So okay, I'm more yeah, of a no, Ovechkin. I'm more of a Ovechkin guy. Uh, than yeah, Crosby that, guy. That, that's, it's like, it's like hockey fans are divided up into two, into two groups. Like, you know, yeah. people that love Ovi, yeah. uh, and uh, people that hate him and love Crosby. But... I, I really think it's two groups. It's it's uh, fuck Crosby or Crosby's not that bad. That's yeah. really the only yeah. medium there. <laughs> well, I I, <laughs> I don't want to offend you, but um, I heard somebody say one time, and I, and I I I kind of believe this. It's people that know a little bit about hockey. You know, they kind of see a little bit about Crosby, and they're like, oh my god, this guy's just such a whiner and everything like that. But then, and like when I, my first 10 years of watching hockey and stuff like that, I, 
um, I had, I was to the point where I like, I hated this certain team and I love this team and I love this player and I hated this player. And then as, as time goes by and you learn more and more and more, it's like all these players that you, that you just hated. I mean, there might be some exceptions like Brad Marchand or something like that, but all these players that you, that you just hated for so long, then you find out about their personal life and like all the things that they donate to and how hard they had yeah. to work to become anybody that makes it to the NHL has yeah. worked so, so, so hard. And so yeah, it's hard I, to hate anybody, you know? I, I will I will say I have the utmost respect for Sidney Crosby because he is a hell of an athlete, hell of a hockey player. Uh, he's just not my cup of tea, if you will. Yeah, you know, that's I've, the thing. I've seen it's some like... cool I've seen some cool stuff about him, you know, where when he was a little kid, he used to spend two hours a night shooting pucks into his his mom's washing machine and and uh, stuff like that, that, you know, guys who put in the time you had to you had to do something right to get to the NHL. It's not like the NBA where you can just, uh, you know, have all the skill in the world and get there because you're seven foot tall, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I told you that the reason, most of the reason why I'm, I'm a Penguins fan is because of Evgeny Malkin. Like, like that was my favorite, like every Jersey that I have is, you know, Malkin. And, uh, but, but one thing I think we can all, you couldn't find an American guy to like Dave. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, there's, well, yeah, I I could, that could be a whole nother whole nother subject but um sorry right. yeah, was was well, canadian so well one of my other favorite players of all time is pavel datsuk oh and, yeah uh, fantastic yeah great red yeah. great red wing Woo. yeah for sure well he's sean, sean stahl's a big red wings fan too so but who doesn't love the red wings you know it's kind of like the blackhawks you just they're yeah they're just like yeah you know legendary legendary players that's for sure but anyways yeah. we got off on yeah. a we can sorry yeah we went out. off on a hockey tangent sorry <laughs> yeah no what were we talking about brad no <laughs> at one point we were talking about sandhill cranes <laughs> yeah lessers and graders which which um I, I am interested in uh i i imagine that the the difference in the two is mostly body size yeah, I mean body size, and then obviously just like Canada geese, the sounds, the sounds that they make, things like that. You know, your your lesser sandhill cranes are a lot higher pitched. Uh, greater sandhill cranes are a lot deeper, a um, lot more elongated in their call. So, uh, but really, other than that, it's it's size completely, just like in Canada geese. They're they're and and what's go ahead, sorry. What's a lesser way versus what's a lesser sandhill way versus a greater? Well, that's a good question. Uh, lesser I'd probably have to say is probably going to be more in that six to 10 pound range. And the greater is probably in that, you know, 10 and up range. I mean, you'll shoot some big ones. We, we shot a real big one last year. I had some staffers from, uh, Bill Saunders calls down with us from Nebraska and they were hunting cranes and they shot one that had an eight foot wingspan. He was a greater. So the bill on that guy was, I mean, his beak was almost a foot long, just a monster of a crane. And this year on social media, I saw a couple of really big ones shot this year too, that, you know, probably go 15 pounds. So, I mean, they're, they're big, they're big, tall birds, but they're all legs, all legs and wings. Their their breast and body cavity is pretty, pretty small. So, but they're stout birds for sure. They're tough, tough as nails on those dogs. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen um I've seen images of dogs wearing um eye protection. Yeah. I presume. Oh yeah. To to pro- 
protect them from those big long sharp beaks yeah it's a there's a great there's a great company out there that started uh making military grade goggles for dogs they opened it up to other people you know that like outdoor activities and all of us crane guides saw those and went oh those are perfect for our dogs to keep our dogs from getting their eyes poked out because that's the first thing that those cranes go after when the dogs run up to them if if the crane is crippled uh, you know, they start stabbing like a cobra at the dog's face, basically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, dogs losing eyes, getting um, there's lots of stories about, you know, guides, dogs getting their, you know, lungs punctured and all kinds of stuff. Because they basically those cranes have a razor sharp beak. They use them like chopsticks to pick up all the grain on the ground. So they just sit there and basically sharpen over time. Um, and then they, you know, they strike at them and then also people don't think about it but their their feet have really long toenails on them because that's what they scratch the ground up like most birds do uh, but they're you know pretty incredibly strong and they'll go up and they'll kick at you and scratch at you i've had them tear my jackets with their toenails and stuff so yeah my dog i have a chesapeake bay retriever um great dog uh his name's willie and uh, yeah, he wears the goggles and he hates every freaking second of it. He just tries to claw him off of him at nonstop. But uh, when he's out there fighting those cranes and grabbing them and picking them up, he uh, I'm sure he appreciates having them on there. I have to change the lens in those goggles, actually, probably every uh, every three or four hunts because those cranes strike him in the face and scratch the crap out of those goggles. Um, so it makes it hard for him to see after a little while getting those goggles beat on like that. So do you have any idea? I'm just kind of curious. I wonder if, and if anybody listening knows, I'd love to find out like, why did cranes, you know, evolve into what, what they are like super, super tall, um, tall and thin with super long bills and stuff. And it's like, it probably, it all had to happen before we ever had you know, grain crops and cultivated farms and stuff. And I, I wonder what that, what that's for. Any idea? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. I would love to see something on that. You know, they say that sandhill cranes are the oldest relation bird to a dinosaur. Um, a lot of guys call them dinosaurs in a joking manner. Um, but yeah, they are, they are one of the oldest uh, birds that remains unchanged uh, mm. from those prehistoric type times so i'm sure it has to do with something of walking through the marsh picking through you know wild rice or something to that effect yeah. uh where they need that long beak to be able to reach down into places and and get their food from and then the long legs obviously probably walking through water you know cranes roost in the water but they don't swim like a duck or a goose they like that's what makes it so great about west texas is we have the playa lakes that None of them are more than a cup, uh, maybe a foot or two deep. And the cranes can stand out there in the middle of them uh, and roost. That way they can hear any danger, coyotes, things like that coming up in the middle of the night. Um, but that's typically where they roost. So I imagine the long legs come from that. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the most interesting thing for me, um, which is the the decoy as aspect of it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, we've been talking about this for a while and, you know, you've been sending me um, information and, and parts and, you know, dead animals and maggots 
I was going to say I, that, that crane head that I didn't freeze so well that had the maggots. That was an extra special gift. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just part of the, it's part of the business. And, and uh, I put it in a Ziploc bag. Wasn't that good enough? Come on, Dave. Well, yeah, yeah, it was, it was good enough. And that, and uh, what the thing is, I've always heard that you're kind of a jokester and stuff. So when I opened that, I was like, okay, <laughs> just wait, you know, because the payback for this is going to be really bad. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm fully, ex- I'm fully expecting payback for that one for sure. So. <laughs> well, yeah, no, the, yeah, just, the decoy. You... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say what, you know, tell, tell, tell me about what would be, you know, everything that you would want in a decoy size wise and, and poses and all that stuff. Well, I mean, if money were no object and your time was, uh, was all mine, I would have you make a lesser and a greater, uh, subspecies. I would have, uh, basically four poses for each of those. I'd have a couple different feeders, uh, and a couple different sentries maybe a high sentry, a relaxed sentry. Um, and I would definitely have some sort of motion system. You know, there's some other decoy manufacturers out there right now that are making some pretty nice cranes, um, but everybody has room for improvement. Uh, I personally think having some legs on them would be pretty cool. Um, having some sort of uh, bungee system that like you guys have on your goose decoys to where you can limit their motion is a big deal. Uh, you know, we get a lot of big wind in West Texas and Oklahoma, and those cranes don't seem to like it when those decoys are bobbing and spinning and flailing, kind of like the goose decoys um, can do in that wind. So having a way to really lock them in secure would be a big, a big deal. And then having a stout okay. base, you know, shoving those big bases, uh, those big, uh, stakes into the ground when it's hard and frozen can be tough. So making sure it had a sharp pencil point, but also some place to put your foot, you know, to help drive the stake down with your foot would be a big thing for me. Um, hmm. But obviously the realism in the decoy, the part that the crane is actually going to see is the biggest part. And that's where I'm most excited to get you guys involved because of course, everyone knows that uh, DSD is, is the pinnacle of realism in the industry. And for me, uh, there's a lot of good cranes out there on the market. Uh, those guys have done a great job, but I think an artist like yourself could really improve that. So paint scheme, paint scheme is going to be a big deal. Our cranes are a pretty wide variety of, of gray. Uh, they also have some copper built into them. That's pretty cool. Um, there's been a lot of talks about where they get that copper from. Is it iron in the water? Is it diet this that and the other um does it say that it, the bird's a juvenile versus an adult with more copper um there's a lot of arguments there but they're just cool birds like when you are out scouting and taking pictures and you get them close up in your hand on a hunt they're just really neat birds and they stink it's funny they smell awful uh when you hold <laughs> them in your hand guys guys call them stank storks because they literally they smell uh, it is a musk that I have never encountered in my life. Um, do you guys know, do you guys have up there in the Pacific Northwest, like a stink bug, the little bug that ex- excretes? Yeah. Um, it, so that's almost a sulfury smell, you know, like kind of like rotten eggs. They don't smell like rotten eggs, but it's that kind of musk, that kind of musk that just hits you. And I don't know if it's the oils in their, in their feathers and their skin that helps them keep dry or whatever, but they just, they smell atrocious. 
And it's just and funny so there's none of that. None of that um, ca carries over to the the meat. No, not at all. No, that's uh, why it's got to be something to do with the feathers and the, and uh, you know keeping water off and stuff like that. It, it's got to be something with that because n none of that carries over to the meat. Yeah, probably. Yeah, pro probably is the 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 oil glands. But you know, yeah. I don't I don't know. But yeah, I mean, like, like you know, I've trapped for years and years and years, and like I've, people have have eaten beaver beaver meat mm -hmm. before and like you know like uh, and you know it's like i i've tried it and stuff like that but it's it's it always has that that flavor of beaver caster you know and so yeah. and, and like antelope or bighorn sheep if you don't if you don't take care of them right they kind of do too but uh yeah that's that's one thing i couldn't handle about beaver and so like it's it's, it's weird to think that there's this animal that kind of stinks and you you can't hardly smell it but you can't wait to eat it <laughs> i I got to be honest, Dave. I didn't hear anything after you said you don't like smelly beaver. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to have I'm going to have to have Scott cut that out for me uh, because I'm going to make that your ringtone when you call me. Is you just saying you don't like smelly beaver? Well, the uh, the, the the joke is that it, Scott's not cutting that out. By the way, oh, so. perfect. Even better. <laughs> this is getting to know Brian Richter. Yeah. He's, yeah. The Richter all, scale. All access, all inappropriate, all the time. My <laughs> wife, my wife teases me. I don't have a serious bone in my body. So she teases you that you don't have a bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's okay. see. I was trying to give you one back there, but oh, yeah. okay, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Well, I yeah, I didn't catch all of it. All I heard was that your wife teasing you about your bone, so I didn't. Oh, perfect. Even better. <laughs> well, you know, if you would like to get. Dave back. He's kind of served this one up on a platter. It is, uh, for our listeners, it's February 16th right now. And I still see Dave's Christmas tree in the <laughs> background there. So, well, it was, but you have gotten your ornaments down at least. Yeah. Well, I, I had it out for Valentine's day. Every, everybody does that, right? Like it's, my, yeah. Yeah. You know, people keep, people keep well, saying that I'm losing my mind and I'm losing my edge and all that stuff. It's like, hello, I've got my Valentine's tree out. <laughs> right well and if you take it down now i mean you're just gonna have to put it up again in 10 exactly. months so yeah yeah what's the point yeah you know i was telling brian earlier like yeah we we um we for some reason for some unknown reason we bought a used artificial christmas tree which i know i take lots of shit for that um on craigslist and uh once we bought it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And now that we have it, we don't have anywhere to store it. So it's like sitting in the room behind me. I'm pretty sure that's how all Christmas trees are that are synthetic is you, you put them away somewhere and you never get them out again, or you just leave them out continuously. <laughs> great. So. Yeah, great. So, okay. Well on decoys, one of the things you said that is kind of um, resonating with me is you were talking about a wide variety of colors. So does that mean in a flock of, of sandhill cranes, some are dark and some are light and some are different, a kind of a different shade of gray. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you'll have, you'll have a few color variations in there, especially when you're looking out over them. Now, some of that could be the way the sun's hitting them, the angles they're standing at. But yeah, there's there's definitely lighter and darker cranes. Uh, that's always something cool when you're out uh, in the Lubbock area scouting. Like you'll see some 
uh, Lewistic, like the uh, the white. They're not whoopers. They're Sandhills, but they have super light white color to them. Um, not very many of those. I mean, those are pretty rare, kind of like people shooting all the hybrids these days. The hybrids have been around for a while. Just nobody knew about them because of social media. Kind of the same thing there. But then there's also some dark cranes. You know, uh, two years ago out there in Lubbock, we were we were chasing a bird around trying to get him killed. That I mean, that that sucker was as dark gray. He was almost black. It looked like uh, standing out there in the field, and we never did get him. But uh, pretty pretty cool. The different color variations, and you really can't go wrong. I mean, I I think. Um, as long as you get something that's accurate to them. And, you know, I sent you those crane parts and I tried to send you a couple of different birds, uh, lessers, graders, uh, juveniles, all that stuff. So you could really see, but that I call it battleship gray. It's kind of got a little bluish hue to it. Um, that's, that's the gray that they are. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and Brian, you were just talking about hybrids. Are, are you talking about lesser greater hybrids? Or are you talking about whooping Sandhill. Oh no no no! I meant I meant like goose hybrids, like uh, like or or, uh, or duck hybrids. You know, on the internet right now, the big craze is oh, all these right. speckle belly Canada crosses, or like blue goose speckle belly crosses, or mallard pintail crosses. It's just like people are they're becoming so much more prevalent these days. But really, it's just because of social media. You see all these guys harvesting these cool birds. So that's what I was referencing there is kind of the big trend right now of you ain't cool unless you shot a hybrid. So is there? Well, I haven't shot a hybrid, so I guess I'm not cool. <laughs> well, no one's ever accused you of being cool. So That's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, so, but is there, is there, are there hybrids between like a whooping crane and, and sandhill crane? And I, I got to think there is, there is in every other type of bird. I, I would say that it's pretty rare because just the amount of whooping cranes is so low. You know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's only what a couple thousand, couple hundred in certain flyways. I mean, they're they're so heavily regulated. If you see a whooping crane, it's got you know five tarsal bands on it because it's been caught six times in its life. So, uh, you know, we, I've only ever seen one uh, whooper out there in Lubbock, uh, and it was two years ago. But I, I know they see them a lot in Louisiana, Arkansas. That Mississippi mm. flyway seems to have quite a few more whoopers um, than out there west where I'm at. Interesting. And so speaking of bands, um, cranes are interesting because they, they band them above the, I don't know, is that the knee joint? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they yeah. usually have a tarsal band, and a lot of them, uh, there's – there's not a lot of banding projects for cranes, and there's actually some that have geo trackers. Um, so it's it's pretty pretty awesome, pretty rare to shoot a banded crane. I know there was a few taken last year in Canada. Uh, I know there was a couple taken this year around Lubbock. Uh, last year there was a couple that had geo trackers, but I mean, I bet total on all of social media I've seen less than 15 banded cranes taken in the last three to four years in that uh, Lubbock area out there. Now over, you get over towards Tennessee and Alabama and some of those Eastern birds, they banned a lot of those. And it's funny because our cranes, you know, a crane's leg is black and over in our flyway, they banned them with black tarsal bands and black bands. So it makes it really hard to see them. But over there in Tennessee and Alabama, they have green and yellow and 
all these red crazy tarsal bands you can see from 10 miles away they don't they don't do that for us because i guess we're a bunch of savages over there we just we sort out we do the old dave smith and hunt down the bands and shoot them out <laughs> so. yeah hey it's less than human that's horrible <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine someone would want to do that. I'll never, I'll never forget years ago when all those guys started giving you all that grief about band hunting and that how that was even a thing. I was just that was unfathomable to me that somebody got mad at you for harvesting a banded bird. So I'll, just, yeah, I'll never, wait, I, well, I can remember reading through that shit for weeks, just, just wondering what is the deal. I, and I get it if it's a biologist or somebody that you may potentially be skewing the data. But it was such a hot button topic for you, and you were so like kind of polarized in that whole deal, like so villainized, I guess, by some people. It was funny to me. Yeah, that's yeah. We we kind of make a joke like, you know, here these biologists have something that's like so valuable, and they just they just got to make sure that it doesn't you know it doesn't get hurt or shot or broken and everything, and then they go put it on a game bird, yeah. you know. It's yeah. like, okay, if you want to keep something nice, don't put it on a bird that's going to yeah. be flying around yeah. and wide open for hunting. Yeah. But yeah, you don't give your 16 year old kid a Ferrari, you know? Yeah. You know it's going to get fucked up. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, and so uh, back to these these guys that ridicule us for, for band hunting, especially Dave, um, you know, one of the, the most spot on. Um, replies that i've ever seen to uh, one of these guys was something that bill saunders said he said <laughs> what was it he said um oh look a band don't shoot it said nobody ever right yeah 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 for sure yeah the the cranes are the cranes are the same way they're they're very very rare and very very special if you get one a good buddy of mine kyle fagler who is a dog trainer out of wyoming and a longtime crane guide in West Texas, he shot uh, one with a tarsal geolocator on it. And he he basically said that is one of the best trophies he's ever um, harvested in his life. And this guy's been, you know, a 20 year career guide, uh, shot stuff from Canada to Mexico. And and he just I mean, he was giddy like a little schoolgirl to get it. So it was pretty oh, cool. Nice. That is cool. A trophy. That's just mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fu it's funny you brought that up about the bands. It's just just today on Facebook, uh, a memory came up, and it was of some some young kid, you know, making fun of me, saying saying like, uh, you know, sure sure you've got all those collars and stuff like that. It's amazing what money can do, and stuff and <laughs> and. I, oh, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I just, I, I think I did a good job of pretty much dismantling him. Um, and that <laughs> came up today on Facebook. And I had to, of course, share it again and bring it back out there to let <laughs> everybody read it again. It's always nice to pick on underprivileged children, Dave. <laughs> yeah, that makes me feel, makes me feel cool. <laughs> no, I, well, I, 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 like I, to, I, I like to push kids downstairs as well, but, you know, <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a bit, yeah, video I got some shit not too long ago for, um, I posted up some, some bands and, um, I think it was my, my collar collection even. And, um, 
and there was all kinds of comments, but one of them that I remember sticks in my mind the most was some guy said, well, it looks like somebody hunts right next to the refuge banding sites, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And like, huh, that's funny. <laughs> I'd say on average, my my typical band recovery is uh, about 2,000 miles from the banding site. But sure, yeah. you go ahead and think that. Yeah, you know, we, it, that bands are such a, just a polarizing topic. You know, we we shoot a ton of bands at Ranger Creek down there in Haskell. Uh, because of all the speckle bellies there's a huge speckle belly banding project in alaska and i mean we shoot on average 15 to 25 a year between the three or four guides and all the clients and um, almost all of them are exclusively from shagaluk alaska and it's just pretty neat so texas a&m has started uh, a research project and they'll they'll come up and they'll trap birds up there after season at our uh, lake, our refuge that we have up there. And they put the radio tracker collars on them that have a solar charger on them. And that is so cool to me because that biologist can watch those birds fly around. And that data pings off of cell phone towers and it can tell them if the bird is flying. It can tell them if it's walking. It can tell them if it's standing still. And if it stays in one place, it alerts him, uh, hey, this bird's been in this area for too long, see if something happened to it. Like they had one, uh, it fell off the bird and he was able to, the biologist was able to call Justin, uh, who owns Ranger Creek, and tell him exactly what field it was in, walk him out to the middle of the field and get him to a 10 by 10 area of where the collar was. And he was able to recover the collar for the biologist and give it back to him. So, wow. I mean, it's just... It's just so cool, the data that the banding projects provide. And I really, I would love to find out who does the crane banding projects and, uh, you know, just talk to them about that data because the studies that are coming out about those speckle bellies and uh, they're even doing one on pintails now, but it's showing that those birds cross flyways so much. Like they have some pintail data that shows them coming down through your guy's neck of the woods, shooting over across uh, Nevada, across Colorado, coming down through Oklahoma and into Texas. And, you know, they had a they had a speckle belly a couple years ago that, you know, came from Alaska, came down through Canada, came down through uh, the Dakotas, Nebraska, came to Texas. And then in four days, he went from North Texas to the Texas coast, which is about a thousand miles. And then he went back up to Stuttgart, Arkansas. And then from Stuttgart, Arkansas, he went to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and then he went to Cleveland, Ohio, and then came back to Texas all in like four or five days. He wow. just got up in the jet stream and rode the wind. And, you know, so to me, the, the geo trackers and the, these electronic callers are just really providing some amazing data. I would love to see the data on the crane, see what the cranes really do. Are they crossing? You know, because everybody thinks of flyways as being straight north and south or at least following the curvature of the earth. You know, if you if you look at a lot of those maps and stuff, but uh, really they do a lot of cross pollinating or or, you know, zigging and zagging around, if you will, through the flyways as they come down and as they go back. And even while they're here, I mean, they have speckle belly data. I think he's got like 40 or 50 of those spec collars over there where we're at in West Texas. And I mean, he's got ones that come there and stay there all season. And then he's got other ones that, like I said, 
bounce back and forth from Stuttgart, Arkansas, bounce back and forth from the Houston area, go down to the coast and come back in a day or two. You know, they, they just, the data on that stuff is so cool. I can only imagine where the hell those cranes go um, because they're, they're big bird and they go all over the place. So it'll be, it'd be really neat to see that data. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Like right. the, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to know if they act more like a like a white cheeked goose or more like a duck. And like um, mm-hmm. a lot of people, like you like you're talking about, like with the pintail, the way that there is that, all that cross cross mojination. Um, that's why pintails look identical, whether on the west coast or the east coast. And same with the mallard duck or anything like that, because there's so much there is so much of that going on. And then and then with Canada geese there's a little less of that. Like there is, there mm-hmm. are more yeah. straight lines north and south and there's isolating breeding groups and there's groups of Canada geese that are, you know, all a little bit darker or a little bit larger or whatever, you know, be, besides, besides all that, that's how, you know, subspecies have been created and stuff. So it'd be yeah. nice to know with, with cranes and, and it's interesting to hear that about speckle bellies too. Um, but it'd be nice to know with cranes, like where are they halfway in between a, you know, a duck and a, and a goose, the way that they, you know, the way that they, uh, you know, interact between the breeding grounds and the feeding grounds and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting that you guys get so many speckle belly bands because, um, on the Pacific flyway, they're, they're quite uncommon actually. Um, like up in Alberta, for example, um, we actually kill most of our speck bands up there but I imagine mm-hmm. those birds yep. probably yep. end up down the central flyway. Yep. Um, whereas birds wintering in, in California and passing through like Oregon and Washington and, and Idaho um, are, it's very uncommon to get a band. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say that I'd say definitely I'd agree with that from talking to buddies of mine in the Pacific Northwest, you know, guys who guys who target and shoot a lot of specs. So a lot less bands over that. Yeah, way. like the White Brothers down in California. I mean, they're they're in prime prime spec wintering area mm-hmm. there. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of specs. It's gross. They have a ten bird limit. Yeah, that's wild. Specs to me. and because we can only shoot two. Uh, <laughs> so right, and and there's a guide service down there that um, Jonathan White had mentioned to me that they had killed. I can't remember between eight hundred and a thousand specs. I think this past fall and. Um, I want to say they either killed zero or maybe they got one band. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty wild. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really blessed to, to work where I do, um, you know, Justin Hill and Derek McDaniels, uh, you know, John David Stanley guides with me, Forrest Carpenter, uh, worked there for a few years with us. Um, you know, Cody grounds, a lot of guys don't know Cody Grounds. He's one of the best photographers um, in the country. I mean, guy's been wildfowl, Max Prairie Wings, you name it. Um, and but it's just awesome because all those guys down there are world class hunters um, and world class callers um, and just great guys. So I'm I am really blessed uh, to be able to hunt with and and where I hunt. And, uh, we just uh, the crane game is kind of my thing. I. I love it. I enjoy it. Uh, all those guys, you know, kill tons of cranes when I'm not there. Um, but I, I like having my little niche thing. And I just kind of took that crane call. Um, when it, when the crane call started getting popular a few years ago, Vendetta and, 
some of those guys, which Vendetta is now the deception call. And, uh, you know, Haydell's has made a crane call for a long time, but um, it wasn't a, a long style, realistic call, in my opinion. And so getting to work on that project with uh, Bill Saunders to develop a crane call that I felt was was just better uh, and more realistic and have somebody like Bill, who's kind of a, a wizard, if you will, on a call, be able to tailor make one to what we wanted a crane to sound like down there in Texas. Um, it was pretty awesome. You know, there's some great crane calls on the market. DRC, Corey Laughlin makes a good crane call. Uh, the Vendetta crane call is good. But I really feel like this new one that Bill's come out with, the Rex crane call, he calls it, uh, is it's super easy to blow. It's got the back pressure built in. That was always kind of the knock on crane calls before was they just took so much air to blow. Uh, and Bill Bill was able to get some back pressure built in. And so now you can actually really call cranes. Um, before, you used to just yell and scream at them when they were far away to get them heading your way. And uh, there wasn't really any finishing aspect to them. Uh, but uh, now now you can blow them all the way till feet on the ground. So that's, that's pretty fun for me. And uh, goes right along with the guys that I work with and the area that I work with. And uh, you know, all the industry connections that those guys have, it just makes it makes it really nice um, to be able to have all that at my disposal. And in the Rex call, uh, Bill's Rex call is um, it's kind of a long flute style call, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. It's a long flute style, single reed call. Uh, traditionally, crane calls are double reeds or have a brass reed and a mylar reed. Uh, this one is a straight single mylar reed. Um, but yeah, they're all they're all kind of long calls, if you will. You know, for a lot of years, guys just took Bill's Atomic G, that little bitty short lesser call, and tuned them real high pitched and kind of uh, uh, made the sound. Uh, they call it a trill, or I call it rolling your tongue. You know, making a machine gun sound. Um, Dusty Brown, you know, did that for years and killed tons of cranes. Uh, Dusty's a great crane hunter, um, good caller. Um, but it, they just, they don't sound right. You know, they don't, I guess in waterfowl, we're all striving for perfection, right? That's you guys with decoys, people with calls, people with your hide. It's all about being the best of the best. And for a long time, I just felt like the piece missing from crane hunting was, uh, the call and Bill knocked it out of the park with that Rex crane call. Um, and so, you know, guys are out there yelling at them. So we'll see the next couple of years, they'll probably get tone deaf to a call and flip you the finger as they fly by. But pretty exciting to uh, to see the evolution of crane hunting with better decoys, better calls. And now all these guys who are hardcore hunters hunting them, you know, in the past 20 years ago, nobody messed with them. They just left them all alone. And now you get some of these guys who have tasted them, who have tried them, who have hunted them, and you're getting some pretty good hunters. There's some pretty good outfits over there in, in uh, Texas that they're making some piles of cranes and it's a lot of fun. So does that call have the, the bills call the Rex call? Does it have the trill built into it? You don't have to add that when you're, you're operating. No, no, I would say it's still a lot of voice inflection, getting the right tone and things like that, but it is a lot more user friendly than, older calls i would say or other models of call okay um okay. And, and just like in just like any goose call you know you you can you know the old 
the old saying, you can have $2 hands and $150 goose call and you got a $2 goose call. Same deal with a crane call. If you don't know how to operate it right, if your air presentation is not right, um, you, you still won't sound like a crane. Uh, but that's the great thing about crane hunting right now is the calling side of it is still very in its infancy. And those birds are just not used to being called that. So they they hear even a what I would call a subpar or fuck even honestly a terrible caller. Some of the videos I see posted by guys, I if I was a client, I, I wouldn't book with them, but um, I'm kind of a snob. <laughs> so, uh, but that... Uh, oh, we know. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, know. it's pretty easy to tell, but... Uh, so, no, I, I think that's the fun part about crane hunting is you don't have to be a world champion to call cranes or see cranes react to your call. That's part of the fun of it. Um, and that's why it's blowing up and getting so popular and the demand for decoys is there is because guys are getting out and hunting cranes a lot more regularly. Um, you know, weekend warriors or guys who, you know, just want to buy two, three dozen decoys and stick them out in their back pasture and pass shoot a few cranes. Um, Bill and Mike in Canada last year, they were in a time crunch and they didn't have time to, or I guess it was a couple years ago now, boy, this COVID thing really screwed me all up with times and dates. I keep saying, Oh yeah, you know, last year, it's like, fuck, that was two, three years ago. But uh, mm-hmm. anyways, they, they had a great shoot. They took, you know, a few decoys and set them out in between a, a loaf and a feed and, you know, they, they decoyed some cranes into a pasture and had a great shoot um, with Mike huffing and puffing on a call. Uh, one of his first times to ever blow it. and The birds worked, you know, so it's fun. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy because it's, it's not. It's getting harder by the day because more people are getting into it. But that is part of the fun and the allure right now of crane hunting is, um, you know, they're fun birds to hunt. Yeah, that's that's super so, cool. Like I, it it just reminds me of like where geese were twenty five mm-hmm. years ago. Right. You know? Right. So yeah. It's, it's Absolutely. Exciting. It's fun stuff. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So tell us about uh your crane loads. What what are you shoot? Are you going for headshots mostly? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a very good shooter. I wear glasses, and Bill teases me that uh, I am the love child of Helen Keller and uh, Ray Charles. So. I'm uh, not going to lie. I'm not a world champion skeet shooter, but uh, yeah, I mean, ideally you're going for a headshot, just like you would on geese. You want to get out there depending on how far they out they are, what the wind's doing. You want to lead them and uh, hit them in the head because their, their wing bone, even on the lessers, their wing bone is about as thick as your thumb. So that's a pretty stout bone to have to break. I mean, definitely can be done, but I'd rather shoot them in the neck or head. Um, and, uh, and not have to rely on body shooting a, a bird with a six, seven foot wingspan. But, uh, me personally, so, I, I'm a big tungsten guy. I like the apex ammunition. They've been a great partner with us at Ranger Creek for quite a few years. Now we, you started using their Turkey loads, uh, originally and got into their waterfowl stuff. Their steel load is one of the hardest hitting downrange steel loads I've ever shot. I mean, you know, as a guide, you're not shooting the cherry birds right in front of your clients on top of the decoys. You're shooting at birds going away, maybe some cripples, maybe something sneaking out the side or, you know, something like that. So it's typically longer shots and not always at the greatest angles either. And, uh, 
their steel is is incredible. But on those cranes, uh, I just love the straight tungsten um, shot that they make. You know, tungsten is heavier than lead, so you get heavier penetration. But it's also you can dial down your shot size and you can get more pellets on target. Um, you know, I I had Apex make me some uh, blended loads, so it's a number two. Uh, or it's a BB steel with a number nine tungsten in it. And that, I mean, that thing, you get the BBs, so you get that knockdown power at some longer ranges, and then you get the tungsten that just cuts through those cranes uh, like a hot knife through butter. And you don't get a lot of cripples with those. It's uh, It's interesting, you know, doing the crane hunting for as many years as we've been doing it and seeing all the birds down, you get a lot of cripples. And I'm fat and I don't like to chase birds, so I got a dog. But then I started to think, man, I like my dog. I don't want him to get stabbed or cut up or beat to hell by those cranes. So I started wanting a load that would kill him better. And, you know, you can shoot lead at cranes. It is legal, but you can't shoot any other waterfowl um, if you have lead in the spread. So it kind of limits you. So if you want to shoot geese that day or Maybe you're hunting a loaf and you want to shoot some ducks or something. You can't with the lead. So the tungsten is a great uh, alternative to that. It's a little pricey, you know, You but uh, with cranes, you can only shoot three. And even if you're like me, you know, Helen Keller's illegitimate son, you should be able to kill, kill your three cranes and, you know, 10 shots. So that's interesting. Do you guys ever try mixed? mixed spreads then of cranes and goose decoys or, or cranes and ducks? Man, we, we don't really, we usually, because usually where we're hunting, it's, it's pretty defined crane or goose. Now over by Lubbock, they get a lot more of those mixed spreads where you'll have cranes and geese in the same field. And yeah, the Derek and Mitch and those guys at Blackfoot. And when I'm over there, uh, helping them, we'll run some mixed spreads and shoot both. Um, I like to tease Dusty Brown. He's like the king of doing it. He swears you can do it on every hunt. And for me, it only works out about one out of every 10 times. So, uh, but uh, yeah, you can definitely shoot some uh, geese and cranes out of the same field. But traditionally for us at Ranger Creek, we're targeting one or the other. The speckle bellies don't seem to really like those cranes so much. Uh, the lessers over in Lubbock, they're a little more boisterous. And uh, I guess they, they don't mind, you know, fighting with those cranes a little, I guess. Well, that so um, I was gonna go I was ahead, gonna Dave. say that's that's a really good reason too. I mean, the way that the dogs um, are in danger if they're not wearing uh, goggles, and they're probably still in danger as far as like their nose and stuff like that. And that's a really yeah. good reason oh, yeah. to, to have good yeah. decoys and good good shot. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Get them in, get them in nice and tight, and make sure you kill them stone dead and. That way, you know, fat boys like me don't have to run after them and dogs don't get injured. So, yeah, we had we had one we had one uh, two years ago when Willie was uh, in his first season of hunting. He's three now. So this was his second season to hunt. But uh, he, he got his ear torn up pretty good by one. Um, so, yeah, they they can do a number on a dog for sure. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and, and tell us about your goose hunting down there. I know you guys like to target um, specs and little Canada's, and if I'm not mistaken, you guys get hutchies and lessers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, 
you know, the, the goose hunting in Haskell has been phenomenal since the nineties. Um, you know, they had a big drought quite some years ago. And then with ethanol production firing up in the early two thousands, the corn belt kind of marched South out of Nebraska spread across Kansas and Oklahoma, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, there wasn't a whole lot of corn production in Oklahoma. So once those birds came out of Nebraska and Northern Kansas and central Kansas, they basically hit wheat country until they got to Southwest Oklahoma and North Texas, where they farmed a lot of peanuts. Well, in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a peanut subsidy. So farmers were planting peanuts and winter wheat, like it was going out of style on the cold days. The geese were in the peanuts on the warm days. The geese were in the, in the, uh, wheat. Well, now there's no peanut subsidy anymore. And, Corn took over. Well, the problem with corn taking over is northern Oklahoma started to form, for, excuse me, farm a lot of corn, and uh, those geese just don't push south like they used to. So a lot of those big, big mobs of Canada geese that used to go all the way down into Texas, they stop in southern Kansas and northern Oklahoma over the last 10, 15 years, and that's why you're starting to see, especially now with social media, northern Oklahoma is such a a utopia of waterfowl hunting is because we have all this new corn and milo production that we didn't have 20 years ago. But uh, what that's done to affect the Texas hunting is the North Central Texas hunting. You don't get the Canada's like you used to. You get tons of speckle bellies, you get tons of ducks, you get crane numbers. And if you get some really cold weather, um, then you'll get into some good big bunches of Canada's and there's still huntable numbers of Canada's there. It's still great hunting, you know, still feeds of thousands of Canada's, but it's not like it was in the early two thousands, late nineties, where, you know, there was a million Canada's between three counties. So it's just a little different. Uh, the, the flyway has changed a little bit due to farming practices. And like I said, the drought that they had, things like that, but Lubbock, Lubbock is phenomenal. Canada goose hunting for lessers. It's, it's unreal. Um, half a million geese over there at peak times. It's just insane. So, uh, like I said, in the beginning, when we were talking, Texas is just unreal. The amount of waterfowl, um, that's down here. Yeah. Well, we're pretty familiar with lessers, but one of the things that really intrigues me, um, since I've never shot Hutchies before, um, t tell us a little bit about them size wise and, and what they sound like. Yeah. I mean, uh, our, our geese that we're hunting here are, you know, they're very similar to like a lesser snow goose in size. You know, they're that we get them all the way down to, I would say three pounders. Like they're just barely bigger than a mallard. Uh, when I got an old man that I hunt with from back home, he, he calls them a mallard in a goose suit. So it's always a mallard in a tuxedo. So it's funny. He, uh, mm -hmm. But they little bitty guys like that all the way up until uh, yeah, I'd say your mid-sized goose. We don't get a lot of honkers here. We get some local golf course geese, but really that three, four, five pounds all the way up to maybe eight pounds. I mean, eight pound is a monster goose. Uh, and in uh, Texas, I mean, they're even smaller, little bitty, tiny, short, stubby bills, you know, three four five pounders pretty regular they're fun man they are fun to hunt chap uh just chappy bastards i mean they just yak 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 the whole time and they like a wall of sound and you know they like to be called all the way down to the boot bags so you can 
you know, guys can look like heroes in a hurry. You know, in Oklahoma, we, we tease all the Oklahoma guides that they, they, their only calling style is the mad Indian. It just, yeah, 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 as hard as they can until they run out of <laughs> breath. So. so, sound like a bunch of Indians on the warpath. Sounds war like path. guys on a cacra call. Yeah, 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 right? Sounds like a bunch of Indians on the warpath. So, but, you know, whatever kills them, I don't care. I'm not a, I'm not a snob. Whatever way you make your pile is fine with me as long as you make your pile. Now, in, in the Hutchies, they're a light-breasted Canada. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're not dark like your guys' birds over there. They're pretty pretty light in color. So. Interesting. So what's what's next? What's next for you? And, and uh, what's, what's on the horizon? And right now is uh, we get real serious with my real job. You know, the selling fasteners because spring turns into construction season, turns into summer. I chase, chase a lot of turkeys here in Oklahoma. I'm lucky enough that I can walk out my back door and shoot turkeys. Um, you know, our turkey numbers have been just dreadful the last few years here in Oklahoma. So I've been uh, doing a lot more hunting with my camera than I have my shotgun. And uh, now that I have my little guy, my five-year-old, he uh, he's taken a big interest in it. And so he likes to go out and He's not bloodthirsty yet. He still likes to watch them come in and beat up on your nice decoys. So I, I enjoy that a whole bunch, uh, getting to take him out. And uh, so turkey, turkey hunting all of April, a couple weeks in May, and then just the work and family grind all summer. And then uh, September, we start dove season. So at Ranger Creek, a lot of people don't think about dove season, especially if you're not from Texas, but uh dove hunting is a religion in texas i mean guys guys show up in droves um you know ranger creek will run 2500 3000 hunters in 28 days of dove season so wow. basically oh, wow. yeah september is september is wild uh justin hill the owner of ranger creek he likes to joke that dove seasons where he makes his money and waterfowl seasons where he gives it all away so um dove <laughs> dove hunting obviously is uh not a very equipment intensive it's really how nice a yeti cooler do you want to sit on while you drink a beer and shoot uh some dove because in texas you can legally drink in the field while operating a firearm we don't recommend yeah. it and we keep a extremely close watch on everybody but you are spread out uh your closest hunter will be you know, 150 200 yards away so you don't have to worry about, you know, safety precautions there really. Uh, but dove hunting is, is incredible in Texas. I, I tell people, if you've never been dove hunting uh, anywhere, save your money. Don't go to South America, go to West Texas. It's mm. almost as good as hunting in South America. Um, and you get to stay stateside and not have any of the hassles of traveling out of the country. But yeah, it's, uh, I think in the, I see. I've been working for Justin for six, seven years now, and we're averaging close to thirty thousand doves a season. So we wow. shoot a Unreal. lot of doves. Wow. So yeah. And are you guys killing uh, mornings and white wings? Yeah, most mostly morning doves. We will. We do load up on some white wing hunts. Uh, you know, it's funny down there. The white wings they all flock to the cities, and they they try to stay local. But you can usually catch them out coming out of town a few times a year, but yeah, for the most part, it's morning dove. And what's their limit? Uh, 15, 15 a day per guy. 
Gotcha. Yep. I just did a quick little calculation there at 30,000 doves. That's almost 12 pounds of meat. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It, it's enough It's enough to feed four full-grown men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually got some dove. I've got some dove marinating in the fridge. I'm uh, going to wrap them with some bacon tonight for dinner and throw them on the grill. So Nice. That sounds great. Yeah, our oh, friend, yeah, uh, our good friend good. Clay Wyatrick. He, you know, he hunts turkeys like crazy. And then all fall and winter, he's just hunting doves every weekend. Yeah. It, it really is why, a religion. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's a well, religion it, in Texas. It's wild. And you told me that you can beer, you can drink beer while you're dove hunting. So now we know why. why and you why can you sit on the tailgate of your truck. I mean, that's yeah. the funny part is we'll go into a sunflower field, a 160 acre sunflower field. We'll have a hundred guys in there because they never get more than four feet away from their truck. You know, you can just stack a truck, go 150 yards, put another truck, and then go 150 yards and put another truck around the perimeter of the field, and the dove just fly over you, like those videos you've seen in, you know, South America, just coming over the top of the mesquite trees, guys just blazing away at them. Wow. I always think of that little uh, meme on Facebook of Danny DeVito, so I started banging away <laughs> on him, and it's like, yeah, that's dove season pretty much. <laughs> I got out my cooler, popped my tailgate down, cracked a beer, and I started blazing. Oh, man, that sounds like my kind of hunting. Now, I'm not going to lie. It's, Hell with being a dove guide is like being an adult babysitter. It uh, All you do is sit on the back of your tailgate and make sure two groups of people don't shoot each other. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so. hmm, sounds like it. So do you have little bird boys running around like they do in South America, scooping up all your doves? Well, I'm not little, and I certainly don't run anywhere. But I, <laughs> I take my I take my dogs out, and I'll work for some tips if that's what you're getting at. Uh, hmm. uh, good stuff. Well, wow, we're already an hour and a half into this podcast, damn near. Oh, well, we'll have to wrap her up and do part two. I mean, I don't want to give away all my secrets. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even heard any stories yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I got loads of stories. Mike Callion, Bill Saunders, you name it. I can embarrass the shit out of a ton of people. Oh, uh, well, you know what? We're going to make time for that. <laughs> I say we'll have to rip. do uh, e- episode two, unruly yeah. and uncut. <laughs> That's right. That Uncensored. Oh. All right. Well, yeah, that right is a on. good point. We probably should probably should wrap wrap it up and let Brian get back to his life. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I, yeah. I got a conference call in 15 minutes. I'm sure we're going to okay. talk about something super exciting about like uh, new thread yeah. technology on the latest screw. So, what kind of wood do you want to screw later? <laughs> exciting, exciting, <laughs> groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. Uh, sounds like it. Well, my stomach's been growling for about the last hour. So, and mine is always growling. My lunch is so. calling me. Good, good. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been uh, a blast, and uh, I love talking crane hunting. I'm super passionate about it. Uh, I'm not going to lie and say I got all the answers, and I'm not going to say I get them every day because I certainly don't, but it is something that I'm super passionate about, and I can't wait to uh, to see what you guys can come up for us in your laboratory there in uh, <laughs> Oregon. Uh, we'll We'll do our best. So, yeah, well, I've had a good time. I've certainly learned a lot more about cranes and, um, yeah, we will have to get together and do a part two. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we should do, we should do a, uh, a part two 
like in the middle of hunting season next year, like dove season. That would be great because I'm pretty sure during dove season, I live off an IV of, uh, of TX whiskey, which is a local, uh, TX whiskey down here and Dr. Pepper. So pretty much I could just put an IV straight in and that's <laughs> how my September goes. That sounds good. Perfect. All right. Well, it was great catching up with you, Brian. You take care of yourself. All, All right. right. Thanks All guys. Right. All right, buddy. See ya. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of DSD Hunting Podcast. Um, we'd really appreciate you helping us grow this podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or even just share on social media. Uh, that goes a long ways. We'd love the chance to keep bringing fresh content. So if you don't already, follow us, Dave Smith Decoys, on Instagram and Facebook for updates on new episodes. We'll have opportunities for customers to get involved too with the conversation and ask questions. So keep an eye out every Friday for new episodes. And thank you so much for all your support and for listening to us.